Well, I was raised in a little Methodist church, and that that hymn we sung uh, every Easter Sunday, and so, I don't know, it brings back memories. I love it. I love that song. I love that song because of the truth in the song. <coughs> I want to talk to you today out of Luke and the book of Romans, and I'll tell you right up front, um, man, I've, I've struggled Honestly, with this message, um, sometimes I feel like uh, my messages are more of a jumbling of scattered thoughts than I kind of feel that way today. It's almost like I've got to preach this message backward. And so I'm, I'm praying that the Lord would use even me to edify his saints. Luke 24 is where we'll start, and then uh, we're going to go over into Romans 1 here in just a little bit. But Luke 24 is where we'll be first. You'll obviously see why when you get there. Easter Sunday, Passover Sunday, Resurrection Sunday. Whatever you choose to call it, it's a big deal. It's a big deal to Christianity. It's a big deal to the world. Why? Because the resurrection of Christ is the proof of the truth of Christianity. It is the proof of the truth of Christ's message. It's the sign that Jesus really was who he said he was. That the message he brought to us was not just the mere words of a good teacher. It was not just the teachings of a good man. It was a divine message of a divine messenger for his people for all time. It is the proof that his message was true, that his claims of divinity were true. It's the most monumental divining, defining event in all of world history, period. It's the historical event that turned the world upside down. It's the event that was so big we, we literally measured time by it. B.C., before Christ, and A.D., Anno Domine, meaning in the year of our Lord. And then in the West, we became so secularized, that was really offensive. So then we had to rename it B.C.E., before the Common Era, and C.E., the Common Era, if you're a Christian, you just smile and say, well, of course, B.C.E., before the Christian era, C.E., the Christian era, Jesus reigns. It's also nice, it's fun to, to poke this at professors, which I've done a few times, to say, oh, B.C.E. and C.E., what, what was the event that we measure that by? What divided that up? Anything to get around the resurrection of Jesus Christ. There's no getting around it, and that's what I'm here to proclaim to you today. There's no getting around it, and there's no getting around the message that it's stamped as approved. <clears throat> it's the biggest deal in all of history. When Jesus was traveling about preaching the gospel, the corrupt religious authorities of the day asked him for a sign. Remember that? Give us a sign. How do we know what you're saying is true? Give us a sign. And Jesus told them, remember, Jesus had told them he was the Messiah, 
They ask for a sign to prove it. Oh, really? You really are? Prove it. As if the outrageous miracles he's doing on the daily aren't enough. Oh, that guy that's never walked before is now walking. The guy that's never seen before can see. The guy that couldn't hear before can hear. The crippled. The beggars. The guy that that is diseased. The people that are demon-possessed. Oh, all of that's not enough. How many signs do you need? No, the reason they were asking him that was just like the reason the atheists asked for it today. We know you are who you say you are, but I want justification to be able to deny it. And Jesus says, I won't give you a sign. Why? Because I know your corrupt heart. No matter what I give you, you won't believe it. And so he says, this corrupt and wicked generation seeks a sign and no sign will be given to it. Now, now think about what he's saying here. I'm off script, but this is true. Think about what he's saying. It wasn't that he wasn't giving a sign. He was giving sign after sign after sign after sign to anybody that was able to open her eyes and see it. To anybody whose heart wasn't totally hardened, it's plain as day. Now, what Jesus was addressing, why did he say this generation won't be? There were people in that generation that saw the signs. No, what he's saying is, you of hardened heart, you're not getting a sign out of me. I don't whistle on command. I'm not a dog that barks on command. You don't command. I'm the Lord of heaven and earth. You don't command me. I'm not under examination. You are. I won't give you a sign because no sign I give you will you even listen to. Because your heart is hard. And he says, I won't give you a sign except for one. Save one. The sign of Jonah. What he was saying was this. I will condemn your hard heart by raising from the dead. What's a bigger sign than that? You come up with one, let me know. Matthew 12, 39, again in 16, 4, we read Jesus telling his detractor, A wicked and adulterous generation demands a sign, and no sign will be given it except the sign of Jonah the prophet. <coughs> Matthew 12, Mark 14, John 2, we read of Jesus telling those same corrupt religious authorities basically the same thing in metaphor. Right? He says, destroy this temple, and in three days I'll raise it again. Kind of a... Kind of a way of telling them, you can't get me off of your hands. We'll, we'll, we'll scheme and we'll destroy him. No, no, you won't. Jesus was putting an entire watching world on notice. He's going to openly show that he really was God in the flesh. He's going to openly show he really was that long foretold Messiah. Are you the one we're waiting for or should we seek another? Right. And what does Jesus say? Uh, go tell John what you've seen. Now think about where John was. He's in prison. He knows his last days are coming soon. Ah, this is going to hurt me. Because we're this way. He knows he's laid his life out for this. He's poured his life out to talk about who Jesus really is. And in his final hours, he says, hey, go make sure he really is who I've said he is. And what is Jesus? Jesus could have told him, you don't need a sign, John. What does he do instead? He sends back a message of comfort is what he's doing. John is about to die. Jesus knows John's about to die. And and Jesus tells John's disciples, basically, go tell him he didn't waste his life. What should we tell him? Tell him what you've seen. 
I am who I've said I am. His life has been poured out as an offering, and it wasn't a waste. And if you pour out your life for Jesus Christ, at the end of your life, you may not have riches, you may not have fame, you may not have glory, but you will not have wasted your days. And you live in a culture that does nothing but that. Wastes their days. Jesus was putting the world on notice. He would show that the message he had brought to a dark and sinful world was absolutely true. And that's what the resurrection proved. Why is it a big deal? That's why it's a big deal. With that in mind, let's pray. Lord, show us the truth of your word again today. Cut our hearts with the truth and the urgency of your gospel. Remind us again that our faith It's not a blind faith. It's a faith rooted in historical fact, and it's a faith rooted in the very truth of God. Thank you for the cross, Lord. Thank you for your resurrection. Thank you for being a God who's always faithful to his word and who is faithful to his people. Truly, Lord, there's none other like you. In Jesus' name, amen. Turn with me to Luke chapter 24. And I'm sorry for being so emotional. I'm, an, I'm a wreck. I've been a wreck for the last couple of days, but I've been a wreck last night. I told Paul Priest this morning, I text these guys, I'm like, I can't. Ten years I've been trying to figure out, thank you, brother. Ten years I've been trying to figure out, how do you take the message of what Christ did at the cross and at the tomb and make it simple and yet salient and and yet convey the magnitude of what he did there and what i've come up with is the truth is i don't have there aren't words i don't have in my most eloquent hour i cannot convey to you the magnitude of what he's done i don't have the words to do it human words will not that's not metaphor that's not hyperbole i'm literally stating fact human words will not convey and i i take this message and i i I put some other things in i rearrange it i try and at the end of the day i feel like sometimes i'm no closer to being able to fully convey what Christ did than I was when I began. The words that I have will not do it. Let's go to Luke chapter 24. Let's start in verse 1. Of course, you're going to be familiar with this account. Now on the first day of the week, very early in the morning, they, certain other women with them, came to the tomb, bringing the spices which they'd prepared. And that's very thoughtful. They're thinking, let's go, basically, let's, you know, keep him from stinking. He's going to be, the body's going to be starting to decay by this point. Let's go embalm, it's their version of embalming. It's, what they're doing is a kindness toward Christ, toward his disciples, towards the others that loved him. <laughs> I just didn't realize <laughs> he don't need it. But instead they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. So they went in and did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. And it happened as they were greatly perplexed about this, that behold, two men stood by them in shining garments. Then as they were afraid and bowed their faces to the earth, they said to them, 
Why do you seek the living among the dead? Or there's the statement for all time. He is not here, but he's risen. Remember how he spoke to you that he would, he was, while he was still in Galilee, saying, The Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and on the third day rise again. And they remembered his words. And they returned from the tomb and told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the other women with them who told them these things. They told these things to the apostles. Their words, though, seemed to them like idle tales, and they did not believe them. I, I think that, that makes sense. I mean, sometimes we kind of crack on the disciples for being a little slow, but if you heard stuff like that, it, it would seem that that's crazy. That, how could that happen? Of course it's crazy. It's miraculous. That's the whole point. That does not happen. That can't happen. That does not happen. You're right. It doesn't happen. It doesn't happen to normal people. But God in the flesh has the power to lay his life down and raise it back up. So Peter arose and ran to the tomb and stooping down, he saw the linen cloths lying by themselves and he departed, marveling to himself at what had happened. Now Here's my question. Why is this part of the scripture so important? Why is this part of the gospel message so important? I mean, we, we've almost relegated it to like second class in our gospel because a lot of times when we're explaining the gospel to others, what we'll tell them about is Christ's righteous life, their inherent sin, Christ's sacrifice on their behalf on the cross, and then we kind of truncate it there. And I'm not saying y'all, I, I've done that. So why is it important? Why is the resurrection the important and important part of the gospel? Well, listen, a crucified Savior does none of us any good without a resurrection. It's the resurrection of Christ that proves the truth of what he spoke. It proves, remember, he said he would rise. The scriptures pointed that out beforehand. The scriptures predicted that years beforehand. It was the resurrection that was the proof of Christianity, not the death. I'm not saying his death's not important. Don't get me wrong. Obviously, his sacrificial atoning death is very important. But it's not a standalone event. And I'm a bit concerned that sometimes we kind of make it that. But without the resurrection, his death is little more than a benevolent martyrdom. His subsequent resurrection is the validation of the message that he brought. It's the sign that he really is the way, the truth, and the life. He didn't just claim that. It's true. I mean, it's not a big deal if he says he's the way, the truth, and the life. A lot of other people have claimed roughly that before. So what makes you any different? If you're a fan of history like I am, and you read some of the first century accounts, you read Eusebius, you read Josephus, you read there were a lot of messianic figures parading about and prattling about in the first century. Jesus would be an also-ran Except for one little, not so minor detail, he actually died and raised again. The rest of the guys just died. And given enough time, they just become bones. It's the sign, his resurrection is the sign of divine approval on what he was doing, saying, and teaching. 
It proves the truthfulness of the word of God. I know that's kind of reversing how we normally approach it. We might say, well, the word of God actually proves the resurrection is true. And I'm not saying that's not true. That's that is correct. But we can take the corollary as well. And we can see that the resurrection proves the truthfulness, the faithfulness, the validity, the veracity of God's word as well. At the cross and the empty tomb, the truth of the scripture now shines. And let's be honest, at those events, the truth of the scriptures at stake. If Jesus doesn't rise, Psalm 2 is wrong, Psalm 16 is wrong, Isaiah 55 is wrong. All the other messianic passages in the Old Testament that point toward him and the resurrection, all of those fail if Jesus doesn't rise. And mankind would be left hopelessly skewed, confused, inadequate. And what kind of scripture would you have? But... If he really does rise from the dead, then the prophecies are true. The word of God is confirmed. Jesus is who he says he is, and his message is what he said it was. So the veracity of Scripture is at stake at the tomb. Secondly, the resurrection not only proves the truthfulness of God's word, it proves the deity of Jesus Christ. No greater proof could exist for the divine nature of Jesus Christ than rising from the dead. What greater proof could you offer? What greater proof could you do to show that you really are God in the flesh? Besides all the outrageous miracles that he did day by day. Listen, in that day and age, long, long before antibiotics, you go up and give a big old hug to somebody that's leprous. And don't get anything. That was kind of a big deal. Nobody's going to touch the lepers. That's a death sentence. That's why they had to live by themselves. Out away from the community. You can't go in there. And here's Jesus. Bring it in. That didn't happen. That was That was outrageous. If I were one of his disciples and I saw him do that, it would have been like, don't go! Right? But he's without sin. Disease has no hold on him. So what happens at the tomb and at the cross? He allows himself to be killed and then allowed his dead body to be not just seen, by the way, but handled. We're talking about the Romans. There's nobody... That's more of an expert on death than the Romans. And by the way, just a little side note. Those guys next to him were not being crucified because they were thieves. We a lot of times say the thief on the cross next to Jesus. They were not just thieves. The same word that means thief also means insurrectionist. You you weren't put to death because you stole a loaf of bread. You were put to death because you were seen as a political rival. You're challenging Rome and Rome's authority. You're going to be put on a cross. We've figured out a way. We have perfected death. We know how to kill you, not just kill you quickly. We know how to drag it out. The soldiers that were at the cross were experts at death and at torture. They weren't taking Jesus down before he was dead. There are some people, they call it the swoon theory. There are people who actually believe, well, he wasn't really dead, he just looked dead. Uh, the Roman soldiers, if they took the guy down and didn't get the job done, it was their life in place. 
You take a guy down before he's dead and he lives, you die. Trust me, they know what dead people look like. This was their job. Okay? Yeah, he was dead. He allowed himself to not just be seen but handled by scores of different people and scores of different kinds of people from different runs of life. From the taunting crowd of Jews that gathered there to witness his death, to the shocked disciples who were watching in horror, to the Roman soldier that pierced his body to make sure he was dead, to the soldiers that took his body down off the cross, to the centurion who declared, surely this man was the Son of God, to Joseph and Nicodemus who came and prepared his body for burial. He was seen and handled. Scores of witnesses attested that his body really was dead and lifeless. He didn't just appear to die. He really did die. Like the spotless Passover lamb, he died. And he died for the sin of his people. In fact, he didn't just die like the spotless Passover lamb. He is the spotless Passover lamb. His death wasn't just pointing to the metaphor. His death was the truth that the metaphor was pointing to. It was the most monumental thing God could ever do to verify his message. Only God can give life. And only God can take it away. And only God can conquer death. What miraculous sign could ever be greater than rising from the dead? It is without parallel in human history and experience. You look into the New Testament, you'll find a myriad of individuals giving testimony to Christ as God. Why? He showed he was God. Some of them are remarkable. For example, demons affirm the deity of Jesus Christ in Mark chapter 5. The demon said, Jesus, you're the son of the most high God. Even the demons know of his deity. Then there were followers who gave testimony. Matthew said, he is God with us. Peter said, thou art the Christ, son of the living God. Thomas said, my Lord and my God. Martha, the sister of Mary, I have believed that you're the Christ, the son of God, even he who has come into the world. That's John chapter 11. There was the testimony even of the Roman soldier, right? Truly, he was the son of God. And on and on we could go. Christ himself repeatedly made such claims. He said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I and the Father are one. That is an absolute claim to deity. If you have someone that tells you, well, Jesus never claimed he was divine, you know either they don't know the scripture or they're lying. Yes, of course he did. In a very Jewish context to say, if you've seen the Father, you've seen me, you've seen the Father, he and I are one, is a very outright claim to deity. So you have the testimony of all these individuals to the deity of Christ, and yet none of them is as potent as the testimony of one other. I want to show you the most potent testimony to the deity of Jesus Christ that there is. Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, starting at verse 1. Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God which he, God, promised before through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh and declared to be the son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. It's God's gospel. 
says verse 1. Verse 2 says he promised it through the prophets. Verse 3 says it was the gospel of God concerning his son. Verse 4 says he was declared divine by the resurrection from the dead. So the resurrection proves Jesus is who he said he is. He's God in the flesh. The veracity of his deity is proven by the resurrection. The veracity of the scriptures is proven by the resurrection. But also, notice this, the gospel message contained in those scriptures, Romans says, is validated and proven by the resurrection. So what is that gospel message? Well, I'm so very glad you asked. I'm going to attempt to tell you what that gospel message was. My feeble words will not be able to contain all. But to be succinct, God is perfect, God is holy, and God is just. And you and I are not. Please don't give me this arrogant nonsense that you're a good person. You're not. I know it, you know it, God knows it. One day we're all going to die, after which we will all live eternally with God in heaven, or eternally separated from God in a very real, very literal hell. To live with God, though, we must be perfect. And yet we're not. Romans 3.23 tells us all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. First John tells us if you claim to be without sin, you're a liar and the truth's not in you. Don't tell me you're a good person. If you do, you're a liar and the truth is not in you. That's not true. You know why people say that? We just find somebody that we can tell from the outside, they're just not as good as us. Just to do prison ministry. It's incredible. You go on, you got a guy, he's in there for, you know, armed robbery and rape, and he's like, no, I'm really a good guy. Like, what? Hey, that guy down at the end there, I mean, he's a child predator, and I'm really a good guy. Okay, him being evil does not make you good by default. Well, he's more evil than I am. Well, he's evil differently than you are, that's true. But him being evil does not make you good. It just means you're both evil. It's kind of like I've said this before to some of my students. They'll get mad. I'll catch them cheating. Then they're mad. Well, so-and-so cheated. Well, they might have, but me not catching them doesn't mean you're not a cheater. Well, I can't believe you caught me and not them. Sorry, I'm not omniscient. Okay? But them not getting caught doesn't mean that you're innocent. You're just mad because you're as evil as they are, and I caught your evil, and I haven't caught theirs yet. That's a really weird argument for you're a good guy. (sighs) Psalm 51 tells us that we were conceived in iniquity and we were born in sin. Listen, I've got four kids that are seven and under. They can learn plenty of sin by watching me, but the cool thing is I never even had to teach them. How crazy. They knew how to do selfish, sinful things from the moment they were conceived. Why? They got my sin nature. They might have got my eyes or my nose or my, but they got my sin nature for sure. (laughs) 
We have a natural, intense desire to gratify the carnal cravings of our flesh. And you do too. And if you tell me you don't, you're lying. You do. Even from birth, you do. And that nature, by the way, doesn't fade away as we age. I thought it would. I can remember going into seminary thinking, when I get done with seminary, I'm going to be such a great Christian. I'll have all the answers. I'll be like, in my mind, I'm going to be Jesus Jr. Do you know what I found out? The more knowledge I put in my head does not make the sin nature that's within me go away. In fact, sometimes it makes it even more intense. Well, now I've learned a bunch of things, so I'm going to show off how smart I really am and how dumb you really are. I'm sure you've never done something like that, though, because you're a good person. Right? Sure you have. Because the sin nature doesn't go away. Have you ever? Have you lied? Of course you have. Stolen? Of course you have. Cheated? Of course you have. Tell you what you've done. You've lied and stolen and cheated countless times. Manipulated, lusted, deceived, schemed. You've done all of that. What's, what's the end result? Romans 6.23 tells us the wages of sin is death. We've got a real problem. You've earned death, and so have I. The wages. What is a wage? The just and righteous payment for our sin. A wage is the just, righteous payment for work that's been done. You've done work. Tell me about all the good works you've done. Maybe you have. But they don't take the place of the bad ones. You've earned death, and so have I. And the problem is most religious systems offer good works as a solution. What's the solution? Right? I've got these sins. I've got this evil stuff I've done. How do I, how do I clear that? Every other, and I mean every, every other religion on earth other than Christianity offers the exact same solution. You could literally ball all of the world's religions, save Christianity, into one category and call them works-based Self-righteousness. I've got this problem. I'm broken. I've done some things that aren't quite good. They're not quite right. Most people don't see how incredibly depraved and wicked their own sin is. So you have to like talk to them in soft terms, right? What's the answer to that? How do I achieve nirvana? How do I get to heaven? How do I find myself in paradise? Oh, well, what you do is you do good works. Every other religious system offers that as the cure. And I'm here to tell you, if you have an ounce of logic, you'll notice that is not true. Your good works could never clear your bad. They're on separate dockets. They don't intermingle. Let me paint a hypothetical picture and illustrate this a little bit, okay? Let's pretend there's a couple of neighbors, Mark and Tom. Do we have any Mark and Toms here? I was really trying to pick names that weren't actually in the congregation. I got to thinking today, I've got a friend that I do judo with named Tom. At some point, I'll have to tell him this illustration. Let's say we've got a couple of guys, Mark and Tom, okay? They're neighbors. One day, they're talking in the driveway, and they're discussing, who knows, football, I guess. And they get to, you know, arguing about who the greatest quarterback ever is, right? And they get to arguing... 
One thing leads to another, and angry words eventually turns to shoves, which eventually turns to fits, and finally, in a fit of rage, Mark murders Tom. Kind of extreme for an argument about football, but <laughs> I coached football for a while, and I'll tell you, that's not much more extreme than things I've seen in the stands. But let's say that happens. Mark murders Tom. He knows he's done something incredibly evil. So he feels the need to atone for it, just like you would. I did something bad. i got to make up for it. So for the next ten years, he devotes himself totally to charity, good works. He feeds and clothes the poor. He builds homes for the homeless. He donates millions of dollars to charity. And ten years later, it's a knock on the door, and it's the police. Mark, we're here to apprehend you for the murder of your neighbor. But, but haven't you seen all the good I've done in the past ten years, Mark Stammers, right? Well, yeah, we know all about that. No, no, you, you must not. Look at all these people I've helped. Look, look at all the lives I've helped save. All these homeless people, they would, have, they would have froze to death that real bad winter we had. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's great. Yeah, we're, we're glad you did that, you know. But uh, that doesn't change the fact that you murdered your neighbor. See, the same is true of your accounting of sin before a righteous and holy God. <clears throat> all the good deeds you could ever do cannot erase the evil you've done. And make no mistake, my friend, you have done evil. You've done evil inside of you. You have deceived others for your own gain. You've done that. So have I. You've manipulated others. You've done your level best to make sure a situation looks like something it's not because you want to look a certain way to other people. You've manipulated others. You've stolen. You've lied. You've cheated. You've lusted. You've dishonored your parents. You've dishonored God. You have sinned. And this nonsense that you're a good person is absolutely ludicrous and based on our own arrogance, our own fleshly nature, which allows us to do all of these evil things and then say, look how good I am. That's foolishness. In fact, you haven't just done evil. You've done things that you knew were evil and you still did it. <clears throat> That's what your conscience is. That word conscience, con, science, Latin, con, meaning with. Science, knowledge, with knowledge. You did it, it was wrong, you knew it was wrong, and you still did it. Not only did you do that, now that wasn't enough evil. You knew it was wrong, you still did it, and then even after doing it, you worked to make sure it looked some way other. That even wasn't the pinnacle of your wickedness. You did things you knew were evil, and then you worked hard to cover it up and make it look like something it wasn't. You had done evil, then you lied and manipulated and cheated and stole to cover that up. You knew it was evil, you knew what you were doing to cover it up was evil, and you still did it. And you have the gall to stand in front of me and tell me you're a good person? No, you're not. You're a sinner like me. You've done things like that countless times throughout your lifetime. And you stand justly condemned before a just, holy, perfect God. You're staring down the barrel of His holy wrath. You're one heartbeat away, one breath away from having His undiluted, unquenchable wrath poured out on you and justly poured out on you. You've earned it, the wages of sin. You've earned it. You've worked for it. The wages of this sin is death. Who could ever save you from the wrath of an all-powerful God? There's not a person you've ever shook hands with that can make God stay his hand. 
He is an all-powerful God. By definition, he's unable to be stopped. When he's decided all sin must be justly punished, he's decided your sin must be justly punished. And he's decided what the wage is of that sin, and he's decided it righteously so. We've earned it. What's the just punishment? Death. What wage will we workers of evil have meted out to us because of our evil deeds, the deeds that we've done that we knew were wrong and we still did them, and then we cover them up with more evil deeds and make it look like something else with more evil? What will we be meted out? Death. The wage that we've earned is death. That's a bleak picture, my friends. And it's one heartbeat away. One breath away. And it's waiting for us. You can't outrun it. No person can outrun death. It's coming for you slowly and surely. You may escape it today. You may escape it tomorrow. But you won't escape it. And neither will I. Our sin has literally earned us an eternity under the wrath of God. We sit here one breath away from it. The Bible tells us it is appointed for all of us once to die, and after that, the judgment. And it's a holy judgment waiting for us. It's inescapable. That's a bleak future, my friends. But God. Romans tells us that uh, perhaps there's somebody out there that for a good man would be willing to die. What's the incredibleness of the gospel? You're not good men. You're not good women. Neither am I. That's who Christ died for. The unholy, the unrighteous, the unjust. Romans 5, 6 says, But... God demonstrates his own love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Not after he cleaned, not after you cleaned yourself up, got everything together. No, you were a sinner. You were his enemy. My, my little girl, we, were, we had devotions the other night. We have devotions every night. and We got to talking about the people in Israel, and she says, man, Dad, they weren't very smart. I said, you're right. We're smarter than them, huh? I said, no, sweetie, we're not. But Dad, and she started kind of listing some of the things they did. They did all those things. I said, yeah, sweetie, and if we were there, we would have too. We want to pretend if we were at the cross... We would have been his defender. But the truth is, you were the enemy of God. We wouldn't have been his defenders. We would have been spitting at him, hoping the Pharisees saw us so they'd say, boy, We'd be cool and popular. We'd be in with the big crowd, the movers and shakers. And that's when Jesus died for you. 
Jesus Christ, the sinless, spotless Lamb of God, suffered, bled, and died so that whosoever would believe in Him would not perish but have everlasting life. Thanks be to God that what we could not do for ourselves, Jesus Christ, the righteous, has accomplished. What we feeble sinners could never accomplish, He did on our behalf. He lived a perfectly holy, just, and sinless life. He suffered on our behalf. He was put to death on our behalf. The perfect and righteous, taking on himself the just penalty for our sin, my sin, your sin. Listen to this quote by Charles Spurgeon. Because of our sin, we have a great need for a Savior. And because of Jesus Christ, we have a great Savior for our need. That, my friends, is the essence of the gospel. And that was the message that God verified with the empty tomb. Why do we follow Christ and proclaim him as the only way to heaven? Because he is the only way. Why do we say Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life? Because he is the way, the truth, and the life. And no man comes to the Father except through Him. There's no other way you're getting into heaven. You can't skirt around Him. You can't figure out a way and work around Him. You are not getting there without He is the doorway. There's no other way. Your good works won't get you there. If you're trusting your eternity on how good a person you can be, you are lost. And you have no hope. On the best 10 seconds of your life, you're not nearly as good as you think you are, and you're not without sin. The resurrection verified the truth of God's word. It verified the identity of God's son. And it verified the veracity of God's gospel. I'll close with this. It is the truth of Christianity. It is the proof that Jesus really is who he said he is. That what he said, taught, and did was divine in origin. It wasn't just made up on the spot. It wasn't him having grand words. It was divine. It's the proof that what he said was true. It's the proof that we really are sinners awaiting a wrathful judgment. It's the proof that Jesus really did accomplish atonement and forgiveness for sin. It's the proof that the good news of Jesus Christ really is true. And that any guilty sinner who will look to him for their forgiveness, not to your own good works, even your own, the best works you've ever done are still defiled. They're filthy rags. The Bible says our good deeds are filthy rags. But if you will look to Jesus Christ, you'll find forgiveness, justification, and salvation. He will not turn you away. If you will look today, if you will look to him, if you will look to the cross and the empty tomb, you'll find forgiveness and justification. In short, you'll find life. There's nothing but death on every other road. If you look to Christ, you'll find life. Won't you look to him today? Look to Christ and find life. Life. Look to Christ and live. He is risen from the dead. And if you'll look to him, you will be too. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for making a way for sinners like us 
to come to a holy, righteous God for accomplishing such an incredible and outrageous salvation that we who are little more than animated lumps of dust and dirty dust at that could come and approach you with boldness. That not only could we approach you, that we could literally call you our Father. God, cut our hearts with your gospel. Show us how incredible it is. Remind us how incredible it is. And God, if there are hearts here today that do not know you, that have not a personal application of Jesus Christ as the spotless Passover lamb, God, I ask you would reach into their hearts and change them today, Lord. We can't do it. I can't do it. My words can't do it. But your word can. It's well able. And I thank you for that, Lord. Thank you for your people, God. I ask you move in us today, Lord. I thank you for it in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen.